Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhudasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto suchedo ye ula hudi san miao san putoshi Wushang shen shen wei miao fa Bai chen wan jie nan zao yu Wo jin jian wan de shou chu Yuan jie ru lai chen shi yi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our sutra lecture tonight. This is January 2nd, 2009, 2010, oops, 2010. Wow, gotcha, 2010. And we're here in Berkeley, California. It's the first chance this year to say that. Uh, and it's the evening sutra lecture. So we're going to um, chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas that deliver that sutra. It's on the front page of your sutra text. Let's chant that together. It's an invocation, so as we chant, we can... Uh, invocation is kind of like a request. We can put out a, a respectful entreaty, a request that the Triple Jewel come to send their light and bless this assembly. Namu Oh, yeah. 
Please open your sutra text to, if your book is the same as mine, it'll be the last page. Page 80 and 81. Basha, Basha, It might be brighter up there in the balcony if you put the lights over there. There we go. Okay, if you'll start with the Chinese on the top and go down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now we actually read this line last time, but we're going to, we didn't finish, we ran out of time before we ran out of illustrations for it, so I thought we would start over again and pick up where we left off and then finish that line. So it's the seventh line from the top if you're looking at the Chinese. It's the seventh line, we start from the bottom as well. Shirpusa, that's how it begins. And then when we go over to the right, we're going to start with the second whole paragraph, the third actual paragraph, this bodhisattva if he wants to renounce the homeland. Um, Michael, could you up the volume just a tad? Just just give it put it up a notch. Okay, we're ready to begin. Shirpusa. Let me give you a line and you repeat after me. Shirpusa. Okay, over to the right. This Bodhisattva. Let's change the pronouns just for the experience. Let's make it feminine. If she wants to renounce the home life within the Buddha Dharma, diligently cultivates with vigor, and then can leave the home, her spouse and children, and the five desires. She relies upon the thus come one's teaching leaves the home life and studies the way. Okay. Um, changing the pronoun is completely uh, reasonable because currently in the Buddhist Sangha, the number of women who do this thing that the Sutra is talking about outnumber men five to one. So it should be primarily in the feminine and then occasionally in the masculine, if you just look at the statistics. That number is true for Catholic orders as well. Last week we um, said this is the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower adornment. Huayanjing uh, it's called in Chinese. And it's a, it's a sutra, it's a, the words of the Buddha 
talking about the bodhisattva path. So if you want to know what a who a bodhisattva is, how a bodhisattva thinks and behaves, this is the very text for you because it is the um, text in all the Mahayana and all the various teachings of the Buddha. This is the one that describes the Buddha's, um, describes the, the path of the Bodhisattva most thoroughly, most completely. And we're in a part of that text. It's a very, very long text, very big. If you think of Old Testament, New Testament, this is, um, this particular text has 40 chapters in it. Um, when it's completely translated into English, it'll probably be something like 300 volumes, we're estimating, with all the commentary. It's a lot of pages. So. We're in the chapter called The Ten Grounds, which is uh, kind of like graduate school for the Bodhisattva. This is... Uh, this is the Bodhisattva's mm, application already. He's, she's absorbed the theory, now putting it into practice. And it's full of concrete instructions. What a Bodhisattva does. This is not a philosophical text at this point. This describes states of mind. It describes attitudes, responses, mm, instructions how-to. It's a real uh, user's manual for the Bodhisattva path. So here, and I should also say that this is the first one out of ten, called Ten Grounds, Ten Stages, and this is ground stage number one, called the Stage of Happiness. So we're finding out why the Bodhisattva is a particularly happy individual, with reasons why, and how I, you, if we decide we want to behave like a bodhisattva, if we want to kind of take on some of this selflessness, take on some of this uh, courageous, uh, fearless kind of uh, altruism, how to do it, how to step by step imitate the bodhisattva, because this is for sure meant for use. This is not just there as a, um, an account of a person who maybe once lived but is no longer. Okay, the Bodhisattva has now decided that he or she wants to leave the home life and become a monk or a nun. And we spent the first part last night talking about the various uh, renderings in English of this idea of leaving home, leaving the householder's life, of coming forth, setting forth from the house, from the home. We talked about home versus house, mm, various kinds of home situations, and what does it mean to chu, to come forth, to set forth, to leave behind? The word in Chinese here is shu, which means renounce. And we mentioned that the Buddha's leaving home, um, Shakyamuni Buddha, came from a prince's um, background. And that's called the Great Renunciation. It's really the founding story of, of our tradition, of our faith. And 
it's because it's hard to do. It's really hard to set aside what the world tells you is good, led only by a resolve. The prince was led by uh, a fire, and you could say, that in his stomach, a fire in his heart that was lit when he realized that he was going to die all the same. Didn't matter who he was. Death was the great leveler. He saw that and refused to accept it. That was not okay. And that was enough to uh, overcome all the conditioning of his uh, 20 plus years of luxurious comfortable hmm, silver spoon blue blood elite aristocratic life that's what he had the peak he had absolutely the best that the world could offer and he looked right at it and said good not good enough. There's got to be more. And that was what propelled him over the wall of the palace out into the woods where he endured difficulties. He gave himself trouble the way most people couldn't endure. All because he was determined. Absolutely determined. So that's where that word should, to renounce, to let go of. And Two ways to talk about this. Um, mind you, let's see. Let me go touch the text first because we've, as I say, we read it last time and we're talking to it. But I'd like to ground this discussion in the text. So it says, this bodhisattva, if he or she wishes to renounce the home life, to go forth from the householder's home, householder's roof, within the Buddha Dharma, meaning using the Buddha's methods, diligently cultivates with vigor puts those methods into practice. So the Bodhisattva does those practices. And we mentioned last time that it's really interesting to contemplate that the Buddha had no teacher. The Buddha was really on his own. The prince was out there with just this resolve. No map, no model, no doc file, no PDF. He couldn't ask advice. Well, he, mind you, he did. He went to all the different teachers, but nobody had done what he was determined to do. And he was out there checking it out. He was out there seeing if he could find anybody who could serve as his model. There wasn't one. So in the end, he was all alone. How interesting, right? That his resolve pushed him away from what anybody in the world would say, I want that stuff. I want that future the king, I want to be number one in the world. He said, no, number one in the world is still a, a tomb. In and lifespan was shorter back then, in a very short time. Life, the, the finest life, winds up with a grave marker. Maybe it's made of marble. Maybe it's a mausoleum if you're the king. It's a great you know, mound and there's, there are columns and pillars and elephants carved on it but just bones underneath it. He said, I can't be content with that. That's too short, pointless, empty. So he went for something more. He said, there's got to be more. That's what he did. 
but no path, no road ahead. So he did that. What else? Diligently cultivates with vigor. He learned all these techniques from the various teachers, lots and lots. And interestingly enough, those techniques are still being used today. There are still the same number of what, from the Buddhist point of view, are called Wai Tao, which is paths that lead you outside. In India now, maybe even more than there were then. Uh, same kind of paths, are same methods and techniques in schools are still there in India. It's very, very, uh, what do you say? Uh, it kind of, it's a reality test to be sitting in a hotel, four or five star hotel in New Delhi, waiting for the, because you come there to get, get on a bus, right? You're going in a, out to uh, a conference and the bus meets at the hotel. It's the New Delhi Hilton. And you're sitting in there and you got the, doorman with his livery and his mustaches and his braid and his cap and he's bowing very formally and he speaks with a British accent you know and he says yes sir yes sir you know and he's looking very spiffy he's got shiny boots and all and behind him are jet setters the Bollywood crew is coming through they're doing a film and she's got bangles on and they're dancing and, and then across the lobby comes what's called a nigranta. And he's just passing through. Maybe he was attending a puja in the back. What are nigrantas? Nigrantas are naked ascetics. They're naturalists who don't cut their fingernails ever. Their fingernails curl, right? And they need to have somebody help them eat because they can't touch anything because their nails are so long. They can't get down to the food. They, their hair is never been cut since they became ascetics. And it's piled up on their head and caked on with mud. So their hair weighs about 12 pounds. And it's caked up and their skin has whatever they met, just clay and mud and dirt and feathers and sticks. And they're wearing no clothes. And they're smiling, usually very smiling, happy, you know, beard down here curling up and caked with mud. And they're walking across the the lobby, you know, heading for, then maybe on a cell phone, holding a cell phone and they're, you know, and they're curled like that, yeah. And as you go, India, you know, <laughs> India is wonderful. Mother India, yeah, you know. So that same group, the naked ascetics were there in the forest with the Buddha, you know, teaching him. He learned how to do that and said, it's a lot of work on the outside. I'm really interested on the inside. I'm interested in finding out how to control my mind. So he went through that group. The groups that sleep on beds of nails still do. Absolutely. The fakirs who sleep on nail beds. Um, the, the group that walk on fire, the fire walkers, are still there. The group that hangs by their legs from tree branches upside down, still there. Groups that stand on one leg forever and forever, all day long, standing on one leg still there. All those groups are in India as the same, no different. So the Buddha tried them all. The prince, that was as close as he got to finding the path. Diligently cultivates with vigor and he can leave the home, his spouse and children and the five desires. That's where we got, that's where we got last week was talking about the five desires. 
we talked about the three kinds of home leaving. There's said to be sandrong, tujia, three kinds of leaving home. We talked about the leaving home that leaves the worldly home. And that's the that's saying goodbye to spouse, children, and possessions. And really setting out into a brand new identity that is not defined by what we own. How much of our lives is determined by possessions? Well, in the marketplace world, a lot, a lot, a lot. To the point where if our if we're attached to it and our car gets a scratch, our ego got a scratch. Can't drive that car until it's patched up, right? Because that's kind of like driving around with a scratch on your persona, driving around without your tie, you know, driving around with one earring. So we do. When that, we talked about that at length. I don't want to repeat that now. But the idea that to really show, to renounce the householder's life is difficult because we're looking at the, the, the deconstruction of me and mine, the mine especially. How do you define yourself if you don't have that name? When you you let your name go. You take a religious seeker's name. And in worlds where shame and honor cultures, where face is everything, where your clan is your identity, to say, no, I basically am just here breathing. I don't really own my body. I don't own my blood. I don't own the breath in my lungs. I don't own the temperature that keeps me warm. That's all borrowed. Everything is borrowed. I borrow my surname from my parents. I borrow my body from the planet. I borrow my wealth from revenue streams. I borrow my vehicles from the from the finance company, you know, and so on and so on. You look at it the way a cultivator does, and it's really radical. This is a radical step to, to go out from everything I know about me and mine. Who am I? When you jia, as it says here twice in this paragraph, you renounce the home life, you say, I'm looking for something more lasting. I'm looking for something that is not borrowed. What in my life do I own? In the end. And you can go a long way before you find anything that you own. You could say even your the only thing you can find is your karma. The deeds that you do. And even those can are fluid. Okay, so we're getting down to it now. Okay. What I wanted to... No, excuse me. I want to review one more. We talked at length about the five desires. They were, if you recall, wealth, relationships, fame, food, and comfort. So, cai shai ming shi shui. Wealth, sex, fame, food, sleep. In Chinese, they say di yu wu tiao gan. In English, that's pretty scary, so we don't... Never mind. So... 
the idea is that um, most of the things that we use to measure our aliveness, measure our life, money, relationships, fame, that is to say clan, surname, face, that's all involved in number three, Ming, food, which is life itself, food that would include water, any kind of nutrition that keeps the body going, and then sleep or comfort. Those are the things that basically we build our identity around. When you let those go, it has a huge impact on your consciousness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So last time we said those are the outside, the coarse. There's a subtle, finer level of desires. And it has to do with sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations of touch, i.e., things that impact our five sense organs. Not so much the mind. Okay? What does that mean? It means that if you're a meditator, suppose you are already living in a world, a lifestyle, where wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep doesn't no longer pull you out, no longer attract you, are you free of desire? Mm, let's hope so. Not so easy, often. Meditators whose lifestyles are very plain, you could say, getting by on just enough, not pursuing desire, can still attach with the same amount of energy to subtle meditative states. And that gets really complicated, really subtle, right? You can be in there, sitting, meditating, completely, you could say, unmoved by wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep, and yet you're just waiting for happiness to come. You're waiting for that feeling of lightness, qing'an, and ease and purity. And if it doesn't come, mm, something's wrong. What's wrong with my meditation today? It's probably his fault. He hit the bell too soon, right? If he hit the bell a little bit later, he was quick on the bell, I would have had that state I was looking for. I would have been awake. Amazing how the mind can grab on to very subtle things. It's the same desire-seeking mind, only transferred to subtler states. So there's different levels of the five desires. And here's the point that I made last week, and I want to reiterate before we start into tonight's fresh idea. That's to say, these things called the five desires, this list of the five desires, is given for people who are meditating, or you could say people who have set out on the spiritual path. If you have set out on the spiritual path, doesn't matter whether it's Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Confucian, Taoist, atheist, secular humanist, if you have set out on the spiritual path, the Buddha gave advice for seekers of the way, students of the Tao, people who were looking to wake up. And he said that these five things are the ones most likely to pull us 
out of the fullness of our virtuous nature and confuse us. I use those words carefully. To pull us out of our virtuous nature is based on the idea that when we start meditating, wherever we are, whether it's the last day of our life, whether we're eight-year-old meditators or whether we're 24-year-old cultivators, no matter where we start, from that point where we first sit down to meditate, where we first start yoga practice, where we first begin our prayer life, between that point and Buddhahood, or the ultimate end of your path, you never get anything more than you start with. And I mean that literally. There's nothing to get when you're awake. Why do I say that? It's because desires promise us that we'll be happy when we get them. Once we finally get what our senses tell us we need, the second million dollars, that new BMW, the trophy husband or wife, or just a different husband or wife, Mm, more and different and better food and the ease of vacation or retirement. As soon as we get it, the Buddha said, desire has this ability to burn up. Not the thing we want, but the thing that wants it. In other words, me. The problem with desire is not with the wealth, sex, fame, food, and sleep. The problem is with the mind that wants. It's the I want. That's the problem. And the Buddha identified that as the first thing a meditator, seek spiritual seeker, needs to identify. Why? Because the nature of desire is it pulls us out into the world of objects that are desirable and two it can't be satisfied desire has a nature that it burns it consumes think of a fire the nature of fire is it burns stuff up put anything in it burns it up unless it's really fireproof just increase the heat of the fire and it'll burn up most things including metal right desires like that desire cannot be satisfied that's its nature So the problem that the Buddha identified is not with the things. Money is not to blame. Food is not to blame. It's the mind that craves. And when you go into it more deeply, the Buddha said, the craving is there to satisfy a me, an I, And that thing is also unreliable. So once we identify something out there that I want, and I'm going to get it, there's two problems. One is the I that's being satisfied is a transient thing. It's It's a construct. It's built. The I, the me, is built of body, mind, possessions, 
perceptions I've inherited from my parents, prejudices, biases, languages, knowledge, all that stuff goes in to make up the me that I, that I think I need that now. That's a problem. It's unreliable because it shifts. The I that I was at three is different, different than the I that I am at 30. The I that I am at 30 is different than I am at 70. Okay, when did you have your first taste of, of distilled alcohol? Whiskey, scotch, bourbon, rum, or even champagne, right? Bitter wine, burgundy, right? Kids drink it and go, Bleh. you know, give a kid a, a hit of scotch, fire, it's poison, right? That's an acquired taste. Now in Europe, wine is something you meet sooner. I met wine when I was, my dad allowed me to drink a glass of wine, I think when I was 15 or something like that, birthday. But in Europe, it's very natural to drink wine early. But I'm talking about, let's say, single malt scotch. Do you feed single malt scotch to kids? Of course not. Kids just spit it out, right? It's an acquired taste. That personality changes over time. So our desires change. And the point is, it's not reliable. It's a shifting thing, that me that wants. So to finally get the right thing that's going to satisfy it, very tricky. Okay, and the things that we want change, go on and on. So the Buddha is saying, should you, here's the key, if you define yourself as a spiritual seeker, he said, watch out for these five things in particular because they are the ones that people usually attach to and move out for and the result will be that you'll find when it's time to sit and meditate, your mind is gone. You can't be still. Further, you actually have lost the energy that has been moving out for those objects. Now, you can take it another step, which is suppose you, des you decide that that's something you want and you're out there getting it and the person next to you decides that that's also something that they want and they get it first. What happens to that desire? It turns to anger. And when desire turns to anger, desire unsatisfied can lead to stupid behavior, upside down, conflict, murders, right? Karma. Because desire pulls us out strongly. We go after it. We pursue those things. So the Buddha said, greed, anger, and delusion proceeds from two misunderstandings. One is that the me in there is something that needs to be pleased. And two, that getting it is going to satisfy you. Those are two fundamental mistakes. And the Buddha said, see it right. And what happens? The thing comes in front of us and we go, that's a really nice car. That's a really nice car. But you know what? I don't need it. Gas is $3 a gallon. You know, I just, I've been riding my bike a lot more and I'm, I'm really happy when I get there. You know, and my legs feel exercised and my lungs are, feel better. I sleep better because I've been riding my bike. I don't need that new fill in the blank. You know? So that's the issue with desire. And it says here, what does he do? 
he can leave the home, his spouse and children, and the five desires. Because the Bodhisattva sees clearly. He says, yeah, good stuff. Good, I really know good stuff. I see it, it's really good stuff. But I remember when I had it, it was never quite enough. And I was always looking for the next one. Always looking for the new one. Pursuing desire keeps us eternally focused on outside. Cultivating the way requires us to focus inside. That's the basic principle of cultivation. And he doesn't do this all at once. Bit by bit, the Bodhisattva is able to turn stuff around. Bit by bit. And if he or she can really do it, can really turn it around and kind of lessen their dependence on the flavors of the five desires, they have been using the Buddha Dharma. And for sure, they've had a supportive environment. Not easy to do. Um, there was a monk at Gold Mountain Monastery before I arrived who uh, was very attached to money. Very attached to money. And his mom and dad were not so happy that he left home and became a monk. And so they would write to him and he would ignore their letters. I'm a monk now, I've left home. So I was there one night when uh, Shurfu was lecturing. I had just arrived at the monastery. He said, uh, Guaning, Guaning, did your uh, parents write to you today? Yes, Shurfu. Did you read it, Shurfu? Did you read it, Guaning? Yes, I did, Shurfu. Oh, uh, do you always read your parents' letters, Guaning? No, Shurfu. Why did you read this one, Guaning? <laughs> Could you show me the letter, Guaning? Guaning picked it out. His parents had written him a letter on the back of a check. Showed me. So, so. I thought so, Guaning. And he, he looked over, he said, This is my good disciple. When he sees money, his eyes turn red, he said. His eyes turn red when he sees money. So, That's okay, Guaning. He said, Desire's like that. That's the way desire is. It turns us upside down. So, now, that disciple, you know, worked hard. And the funny thing is about desire and cultivation is that as you go along, sometimes the object will shift. You never thought that you could be desirous of fame until you take a new name and sit in meditation retreats for months at a time. Kind of bury yourself in the Dharma. And that personality starts to shake a little bit and peel back. You start to work with who you thought you were. And you realize, gee, I, uh, I could disappear here. Maybe I better write a book and put my name on it. <coughs> you know, maybe I better become a famous cultivator. Mm, you know. So who would know? Who would think? My biggest thing, I had no idea that I had a sweet tooth. Oh, sugar. Sugar was the thing 
when I had left home because um, I had never had it growing up. My father being diabetic, my mom always had to cook without any sugar whatsoever. For us, we never had desserts, never had cake or cookies or pies. If we had dessert, it was fruit cocktail and then a little bit. And my poor dad, my dad had diabetes. And if he ate sugar, he would die. You know, his pancreas was goofy and his insulin was not steady. So he could not eat sugar, sweet things, but that didn't mean he didn't want it. So my mother was the gatekeeper. She was the cop. She wouldn't prepare desserts. A little bit of ice cream, maybe. Just a little taste, a spoonful, but nothing more. And so it didn't occur to me that when I was a graduate student, I was eating a lot of sugar kind of to compensate. I was eating a lot of candy bars and things. And when I, when you leave home and become a monk, you don't, you don't control what you eat. It's whatever people offer, right? Do people offer candy bars? No, they don't. You know, oh, let's t- put a bunch of Snickers on the counter today for the monks. You know, oh man, especially because my birthday was Halloween, right? <laughs> Suddenly, you don't do trick or treat as a monk, although you could. You got your costume already. You know. <laughs> What are you this year? I'm a monk. Oh, didn't I see you last year in that costume? That's a different robe. It's different. Oh, that's good. Well, hold out your bag and I'll fill it with candy bars. So you don't, you can't eat what you, what you want. You eat what comes in. And that's the way it should be. And that's fine. Unless, of course, you're attached to sweets. And I never thought I was. And oh, man, I would come in you know, we do the, the, sh- the meal offering, and at Gold Mountain, you, we walk by the food counter on the way to the dining, to the to the to the tables and the chairs, and we'd be, Namo Banshu Namo, and if there was a pie, right? I'd count count the pi- count the pieces, count the monks. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, I'm last in line. I probably won't get any today. You know. Oh, it's like you couldn't believe the embarrassing things the mind would do to satisfy sweet tooth, you know. And then some days people would know that they would, and they would make offering of sugar, and that was worse. Knowing that there wasn't anything, at least you go oh, another day, you know. But if there was a lot of it, then the mind is just on fire. You're thinking, okay, I'll eat a little less rice and a little less vegetables. I'll leave some more room for that, you know. And see whose cures are coming down. Don't take the big piece. It's okay, you know. And then your hand starts to tremble. You know? <laughs> like, oh, just like a junkie. Just absolutely addicted to sweets. And at a certain point, you go, this is silly. Why are you, you're saying leaving home and cultivating so you can get free, right? Free of birth and death. You're a slave to your tongue. You're a slave to sugar. You know, this is your tongue whipping you around, turning you into this monkey, you know. So it's really humbling to see how, what is it, did my body need the sugar? No, it was my mind. My mind said, you're a monk, you can't get what you want. When you want it, you've got to eat now, dependent on people's offering. And just that thought of, I can't, turns this sugar becomes this ogre. Just overpowering me. 
how humbling to realize the power of the mind. More important, power of desire. Very, very powerful. If you don't believe it, take the Eightfold Precepts, Bhagwan Zaijiya, okay? Next time they're offered, take the Bhagwan Zaijiya, and then realize that you're not going to have any dinner. You have to stay, the number nine is Li Fei Shi Shi, not eating at improper times is a precept for the bodhisattva. Can, can you hold this precept the way all Buddhas have done? Nang shi, yes, I can uphold it. Okay, you take that precept in the morning. You know that you're able to eat breakfast, able to eat lunch, stop. No dinner. Nothing until breakfast tomorrow, until the precept time is up, if you're holding them for 24 hours. Okay. Should be easy, right? How many times have you gone without dinner? A few. But wait until you can't, right? Wait until you're in the dormitory with other people holding the same precept, and if you sneak out to your car and reach under the seat for those, you know, those balza that you've stuck under there, you know, <laughs> people's going to know, again, you're going to feel like a cheat, you know, uh, you know. and then you go, mm. what happens? You eat a big lunch. You take a little more at lunch and stuff it in, you know, and then... Instead of meditating, you snooze. Why? Because you overate at lunch. Because just that thought that there's not going to be any dinner. It's very powerful. Oh my. So desire makes monkeys out of us. And in the end, the Buddha would say, kills us. Because we move out looking for what we think is going to be the one. We think this is going to do it. This is what I'm looking for. And even if we get it, there's a feeling of, hmm, it's not what I wanted, or it's not what I thought. So, what is one of the sufferings, the list of sufferings? It's called chobudaku, seeking and not getting. And there's another kind of suffering, it's not one of the eight, which you could say is chowardaku, the suffering of seeking and getting, because it's so rarely satisfies. It's the wanting that's the problem, not the thing itself. Okay. So, the Bodhisattva leaves the worldly home. He leaves the home of afflictions and he leaves the home of the three realms and becomes an arhat. So there are three kinds of leaving home. There's the shi, chu, shi, shi, jia, chu, fan, nao, jia, chu, san, jie, jia, the Bodhisattva renounces the worldly home, that's possessions and desires. He renounces afflictions. That is to say, the Bodhisattva no longer lives in greed, anger, delusion, pride, and doubt. Bodhisattva doesn't take those states of mind as his or her home. And Bodhisattva no longer lives in the desire, form, or formless realms. That's called the three realms, right? So let's run through that again. That's another interesting list. The three kinds of leaving home. The first is the Bodhisattva leaves the worldly home. That's exactly what we've been talking about. The who am I? Defined by fame, defined by surname, defined by possessions, defined by relationships. 
etc., etc. That's the worldly home. <coughs> Me and mine. But then, the second one is the Bodhisattva leaves the home of afflictions. And that's kind of interesting because it says that we can actually live in our states of mind. We can live in our personality, which is mm, tends to be pretty dominant. You're an alpha type. Well, if that if you're an alpha personality, very aggressive, self-starter, determined, doesn't don't say no, don't take no for an answer, right? Persistent. Um, those states of mind can become afflictions pretty quickly. Suppose you're a meek. Passive, dependent, submissive personality. That can be an affliction. It can be like an engine that's not tuned. When you should step forward, you don't. When an opportunity arises, you pass when you know you should. That can be an affliction. So the bodhisattva leaves the home of afflictions. He, she has been looking at her character to the point where she knows that's not me either. I don't live in my afflictions. I'm going to look beyond greed, anger, delusion, pride, doubt. Look deeper. I'm not just a bad temper. That's not me. Deep. I go beyond that. In fact, I can't find emotion. I can't find an intellectual structure, an opinion, let's say, or a view, a, a point of view, <coughs> that is me. They keep dissolving on me. All these things that I thought were my own cherished beliefs, they keep dissolving. It's not me. Those afflictions are not me. Then, finally, the Bodhisattva leaves the Sanjie Jia. Bodhisattva leaves the home of the desire realm, which is to say they can meditate until her mind is quiet. When your mind is quiet through meditation, you can enter the dhyanas. Chu chan, ar chan, san chan, si chan, the four states of the dhyanas, first, second, third, and fourth, and leave the desire realm. Who leaves the desire realm? Gods. What is it about the state of the Tianren? They are always in a state of Chan Ding. So it's called the Chu Chan Tian, Er Chan Tian, San Chan Tian, Si Chan Tian. The four states of the Dhyana heavens. That's a really quiet, meditative place. And I'll just, just make a note here. Um, we talked about the subtle kinds of desire, sight, sound, smell, sensation, detection. Those five subtle desires, they say when you can enter the dhyanas, if you can really meditate until you can ru chanding, have that kind of dhyana state, they say the, the pleasure, the feeling of that state surpasses any kind of pleasure in the world. There's no single state, be it full of the most delicious food, be it full of connubial bliss or lying on a beach with the sand, white sand and gentle waves and sunshine and a breeze. That's all good, right? Not anything compared to the first 
Li Sheng Shi Le Di, the first kind of state, the state of the dhyanas that goes beyond what ordinary people can experience. They say that state is truly, truly blissful. And that's the first of four. And you keep on going up. The last one, Shu Nin, Qing Jing Di. That's a state where no thoughts move at all. Your body and mind are so integrated. They are so mm, tuned, right? Like the finest Lamborghini, the finest Ferrari engine, when it's well-tuned, sounds really good. Mm, you know, RPM, mm, really fast, really good. The body and mind's tuning goes beyond that kind of harmony of a well-tuned internal combustion engine. Shunin, no thoughts interrupt. You don't have any doubts, fears, afflictions, troubles, worries, blues, miseries, all gone. That's the fourth dhyana. So anyway, they say that those are really wonderful states. The bodhisattva, the cultivator, who has chu sanjie jia, who's gone out of the, the, lift the home of the three realms, goes beyond the dhyanas, goes beyond the form realm where the Brahma gods live, and goes beyond the formless realm where the gods whose consciousness is so pure they don't have bodies, all the way through to what? Arhatship. What lies outside the three realms, form, desire, form, and formless? Arhat. You've ended birth and death. So the bodhisattva leaves that home too, or the cultivator, let's say, who leaves the home life, the three home lives. You leave worldly home, home of afflictions, the home of the triple realm to arhatship. You've ended birth and death. So that's really leaving home. That's zhen zhen chu jia, chu san jie jia. So that's the list of what it means to leave home. What else? Relies upon the thus come one's teaching, leaves the home life and studies the way. Xue dao. Chu jia xue dao. Mm. I have a verse that I want to read to you. I really, really, really like this verse. This is my, um, this is volume three of my missal, M-I-S-S-A-L. Kind of like a, in the Catholic world, it's a prayer book, a missal. But it's more than that. It's my cultivation journal diary kind of thing. And I've been keeping it since I first left home. I've got Shrifu's picture and vows that I made. Mm, teachings that especially impressed me, repentances that I made for incredible blunders and mistakes, Master Ching Liang's Ten Vows, all kinds of wonderful quotes and leaving home pictures. And this, I, this is volume three. There, there are four now. So this is one verse that I really, really liked. And it's from the Agamas, from the Ohanjing. And it's, what is a shramana? What is somebody who leaves home? A shramana. What is a shramana? It says, I'll read it to you in Chinese. Shu li en ai. Chu jia xiu dao. She yu zhu gen. Wu ran wai yu. Si xin yi qie. 
I think this could be a great song, and I'm still working on it. Um, I got the idea to turn this into a song. Getting the right melody is going to be a trick, but we'll see. It goes like this. What is a shramana? The shramana is able to let go of affection and love. Renounce the household to cultivate the way, the Tao. He or she gathers back and subdues all six sense organs. So they are no longer stained by desires from outside. This person keeps a kind heart towards all creatures and never again harms any living being. When he meets pleasure, he is not overjoyed. When he meets when she meets pain, she is not dismayed. She is able to endure like the earth. That's why he's called a Shramana. A left home monastic cultivator of the Buddha's way. Isn't that neat? Let's go of love and kindness or affection, meaning comes forth from the family, which is not easy to do. Leaves home to cultivate the way, subdues and tames the six senses so they're not gone, stained by, they're not defiled, they're not attached to. Why? You external desires. Sushin Ichi, kind heart towards all things. Wuso Shanghai harms absolutely no living creature. And then a pair. Yule Bushin Feng Ku Buqin. Meaning happiness, the pleasure, it's not overjoyed, takes it in stride, it's natural. Meeting suffering is not dismayed, not knocked over by waves of unhappiness. For all things able to bear like the earth, can be as patient as the earth. This is called a shramana. I really like that. That's going to be a good song. So, <coughs> coming up. Okay. Um, what about this thing about leaving home? Um, it's really tough on moms. Leaving home is hard on moms. It's hard on dads. Look at the Buddha's dad. The king, Sudodana, did not want his son to leave home. Sons are hard to come by. Sons that live out of childhood are even harder to come by. And he didn't want his son because he'd been predicted to be the king. He was going to be a king. 
Didn't want his son to leave home. Tried to prevent it. Did everything he could to cheat his son out of his birthright as a spiritual rule as a spiritual leader. Tried to create a world where he wouldn't meet anything that would remind him that would get his good roots moving, awake, sharp. Ultimately failed because the time came and the prince had a destiny to fulfill. He had vows to make, to, to step into. So the Buddha left home by stealth. He too, like father, like son. Dad tried to fool the son. The son had to fool the dad. He cut off his hair, went over the, fen- over the wall at night, and did dad give up and say, ha, 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 that kid, what a joker. No. He sent, he sent the Buddha's cousins and relatives out to take care of him. And man, they didn't go happy. <laughs> right? Why did that idiot cousin of ours do something as rude? What does he think he's doing? And now we have to go out? You know? <laughs> They they were forced to go out to take care of their cousin, right? They became the five bhikshus, and they too left home finally when they met, when the Buddha turned into the Buddha. But until that time, man, imagine the states of mind of those. They had wives to marry in the future. They had empires to rule. They had money to count, battles to fight, right? They had music to listen to. Nope, they were sent out in the woods to take care of their idiot cousin who ran out. Who knows what kind of a trip. Maybe he's swallowed the Kool-Aid, you know. He's a cultist. He's out there, you know. Maybe we can say he fell into a pit and we'll just bring his robe back, right? Maybe we can push him into a pit and bring his robe back so we could get out of this forest. And Who knows what kind of thoughts they had. And testimony to that is when the Buddha woke up, he was alone. Right? It took six years. Those cousins stayed with him. They were out there. Those relatives of his were out in the woods with him. And it said that two of them left him because they couldn't take it. It was too hard, too bitter. They couldn't stand the asceticism. And they left him and went to the deer park where it was a little sunnier, maybe a little warmer, maybe a little more food. And the other three saw the Buddha accept an offering of milk and rice from a shepherd girl and they left him because he was too soft. They thought that he had turned his back on his cultivation, his asceticism. So what the Buddha, when the Buddha changed course, it didn't please the last ones. So he couldn't please on either side. Too hard, too soft. And he lost all five of them. So in the end, when he woke up, he was alone. But then he walked down to the deer park after becoming the Buddha. And as soon as he showed up, they saw there was something different this time. He was glowing. He was different. They felt it first. His All his doubts were gone, right? He was just alive with his nature shining. So that's when the five were glad that they had actually followed him. 
They hadn't wasted their time after all. So, leaving home is not easy. Really not easy. Um, do you all know the story of St. Clair? St. Francis, you've heard of. Okay, St. Francis of Assisi. Our city across the bay is named for him, San Francisco. Well, St. Francis from Assisi, good Italian. What was he? He was the son of a merchant. And at that time, if you could afford it, there were wars to fight. And if you fought a war successfully and came back with honor, you had you could rise, because Italy at that point had a already had classes, middle class, merchant caste, and so Saint Francis's father bought him a set of armor, gave him a cop, an outfit, gave him a warrior's outfit, set him up on a horse, decked him out in armor sent him off to the latest war. There were constant wars going on. Well, it's not quite clear what happened, but along the road to the battle, some people say that that the side he was fighting for lost. Somewhere along the way, St. Francis had a change of heart and gave his armor away, gave his horse away, and came back on foot. Just his father wanted to pull his hair out, you know, it was expensive and he lost face and and you know, what have you done? Here you are walking along in a brown cotton robe. So Saint Francis left home radically, giving away everything, including his sandals and his staff. He really took it cool, really bitter, really, really bitter. And there's a lot more to the story, but bit by bit, he got followers. And he became known as a special teacher. And in the hills there around, it's the state is Umbria? What's, what's the state around Assisi? The, the province is... That's called Umbria? Umbria. Umbria, yeah. In that area, um, he became quite renowned as being someone who, re- who let everything go. St. Francis let everything go. He said, you don't want to hang on to your sandals. Radical poverty. So he wrote a rule. He wrote there what monks will do if they study with him. And he sent it to the Vatican. He sent it to Rome to have his school, the Franciscan school, certified, verified as being a sacred order. You have to have a bulata. You have to have the rule approved by the Vatican and the Pope. Well, it was rejected once. Why? Too bitter. In fact, if you wanted to get your school organized, you had to pay. You had to regularly tithe to Rome. And Francis was a critic of that system. He said, absolutely, we monks should not have anything. If you want to meet God, you can't meet God with possessions. You have to give it all up. 
And so he wrote a second rule. And Senator Rome and the Pope rejected it. Too bitter, no income for us, right? And so now more and more followers, more and more followers, and a few miracles happening. So Francis was really getting powerful. And he was true to his practice of real, real renunciation. So um, he wrote a third, the Bulata Regula, I think. And his third rule, and he, a lot of stories happened, and he sent it to Rome again with um, St. Bonaventure, Bonaventura. St. Bonaventure, who was already well-known as a scholar, a pure person, a former nobleman, who had followed St. Francis to cultivate bitter asceticism. And at this time, you know, there was a lot of, you know, if, if the Pope rejected him a third time, there was trouble. But they didn't like him. He was too radical. He was too bitter. So the night before the monks arrived with the rule saying, give us the authority, give us our, our certification, our accreditation as an, as an order. That night, the Pope, I've forgotten his name, it might have been Gregory or something, the Pope had a dream. And in the dream, the church was on fire. The church symbolically was the Catholic church. It was burning, it was flaming, and it was this tall tower, and it was burning and just just ruined and it started to fall and it was going to topple and this barefoot, rag-robed monk came out, held up one hand, caught the burning tower of the church and set it back up and put the fires out. So Pope Gregory, let's say, had that dream. Okay? And the next morning, here's somebody at the door, barefoot, rag-robed, it's St. Francis with St. Bonaventure saying, give us authority. You know, we, we just want to establish for the greater good and the glory of Jesus and the church. So um, the Pope did, but he changed it so that the monks had to own things. They had to own shoes, sandals, sticks, bowls, things like that. So Francis accepted it the third time with a few changes, but he was never very happy with it. Okay, so that's all preamble to say that he left home by throwing away his armor and refusing. Basically, he was a conscientious objector. He came back from war saying, I'm not going to fight anymore. His father was furious because he'd wasted all that money and fame and he's got nothing out of it. Poor dad just lost everything. He wanted his son to be a nobleman. Didn't want to, didn't want to fight. So Francis set up a school. His fame is growing. He's got churches. The Portiunculas, his little church, where he had miracles happen. And what happened? His, shoot, I should have done my homework before. One of his relatives, St. Clair, was... Um, cousin? Maybe a cousin. I don't think she was a sister. She was, she was a blood relative. And she was so moved 
by her cousin, St. Francis, that she said, I'm going to leave home and become a nun. So father said, you are not over my dead body. Mother said, you will not leave home. We've had one disgrace in the family. We're not going to have a second one. So what did she do? She ran away. She ran away and went directly to where St. Francis was. So what did the family do? The family sent out soldiers to steal her back. And there's this incredible scene, whether or not it really happened this way. This is how the, the story has it to this day, that Claire was in the church at the altar with the razor about to shave off all her long flowing golden tresses when the soldiers burst in and grabbed her and were dragging her out and she was clinging to the altar with all her might holding on to the altar and they were pulling her away saying you know don't be crazy what do you think you're doing and she said I'm going to leave home I want to become a nun and serve God and so they finally overpowered her and dragged her out of the church and brought her home locked her up with chains and bars and stuff well she snuck out again, ran to the church. They came running after her and grabbed her home a second time. And this time they took her far away, right? Well, she escaped and ran back to the church. And this time they said, nobody's going to want to marry you. Forget it. Become a nun. Who cares? You're, you're, you're crazy. We don't want you anymore. You're ashamed of the family. So she shaved her head and became St. Clair. And the order was the poor Clares. And most people say, who have studied Franciscan spirituality, that St. Clare was the real mystic. She had incredible things happen in her life, including there was one time when a Turkish sultan came to destroy Assisi. There was an invading army that came into Italy, all the way to Assisi. And St. Clair and her nuns, they're called the poor Clares, meaning penniless, not poor like not how poor, poor thing, but poverty poor. They outdid Francis in terms of poverty. And they were in a castle, a monastery, the convent was set up like a castle. And down below, the Turkish sultan with his armies were coming with elephants and warriors and spears and catapults and fire and they were just about to tear it down and St. Clair came out on the balcony and blessed it, said a prayer and converted the sultan to Christianity and averted all, everybody put down their weapons because she was a saint. So many, many, many stories about St. Clair, who was the <coughs> founder of the woman's order, of, of one of the woman's orders of the Franciscan school of Roman Catholicism. So the Friars Minor, Order of Friars Minor, OFM, came from that, and the poor Clares as well. So leaving home has never been easy. Never, ever been easy. And here in the sutra, you know, our bodhisattva is, um, if he wants to renounce the home life, diligently cultivates with vigor, can leave the home, spouse and children, five desires, relies upon thus Komen's teaching, leaves the home life and studies the way. 
sounds neat and tidy, you know, that it's um, Bodhisattva desires to do that and that's how it works. Well, you should know that there are oceans of tears surrounding every act of leaving home. It's really, really rare if you find parents who say, oh, we really do hope you'll leave home, become a monk or nun. You're our firstborn and we want you to go live in the monastery and shiver a lot and never eat quite your fill and never get rich and never give us any grandkids. That's our wish for you. <laughs> you know, it's like parents don't think that way. They want grandkids. Sure, it's natural. So did the Buddha's father. So it's a difficult thing when someone actually can do that and it's never been smooth. Um, however, that being said, um, it's rare that if the person does go through the novitiate, go through their years of preparation, and if they have left home for the Dharma, if they've left home with a wish to cultivate, to, as it says here, Shri Dao, to realize the Dao, to do what the prince did, which was what? Answer the question, is there more? Is there more than simply getting old, getting sick, and dying? Is this all there is to human life? That was his question that put him out in the forest for six years without a role model, without a guide, without a map, without any guarantee of success. That was the question that pushed him out, and he succeeded. If you leave home with that same kind of question, I've never seen a set of parents who, after a while, weren't glad. Parents of left-home people never keep that bitterness. And I shouldn't say never, because as soon as I say never, there'll be an exception. Right? But almost always, Parents, once that initial kind of tearing away, that separation, once that's healed, and it usually takes a year, two or three, and they start checking back with their new bhikshu, bhikshuni, daughter or son, once that happens, almost every set of parents I've ever seen say, you know, you just seem so happy all the time. I just, every time I go to sleep, before I go to sleep and I think of you, my heart feels good. Number one, I know you're not going to have AIDS in the future. You're not going to be HIV positive. Number two, I know you're not going to be divorced. You're not going to have that kind of heartache, right? Number three, you're never going to do chapter 11 bankruptcy. <laughs> You're never going to come back and ask me for, you know, knock on my door for that. Furthermore, um, you look so healthy. You've been studying martial arts, right? And you've been eating vegetarian food. You look really good, you know. And then often the parents will say something like, um, what have you learned? I, the other day, I was driving home and I saw an accident on the freeway and kind of shook me and I'm kind of wondering myself whether I shouldn't start 
looking into things. What have you learned? Parents do that a lot. If a kid can leave home and cultivate, parents have to have good roots before that can happen, right? Um, and they often ask, you know, hmm, could you give me some meditation pointers, you know, some tips? It's funny how the Dharma is full of light and it's rare that people resent that leaving home for good. Usually it mellows and parents are glad. How funny, huh? So, okay, time has come. We spent two weeks on one paragraph and we're also uh, one paragraph from the, the end of our selection of our section so I have this week I have to translate more and uh, get our uh, booklets a little thicker so we can move forward so if you don't mind pulling out your um, dedication of merit sheet there mention that um, Doug Power's mom passed away um, on the 30th and very peacefully the whole family was there and she's 92 she was certainly ready to go but um, I think any merit sent her way would certainly be appreciated. Also, uh, Guoji's mom is also 92 and she's in the hospital and uh, putting up a real struggle. That's happily, that is to say. She's, she's uh, uh, reciting the Buddha's name and everybody around her is reciting and it's just... Uh, when you're 92, your body doesn't work the way it used to. So uh, those are two strong uh, ladies whose children are part of our community. And, and uh, I think this is a time when any merit transferred on their behalf would be most appreciated. If people hear and see 